Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we will basically look at uh, one phrase today, or maybe a couple of phrases out of verse 14, but I want us to read the passage we let, read last week, 10 through 13, along with that, to kind of set the context. Normally, when we're in a book or in the sixth chapter of a book, we have dealt with the first five chapters first. We're not doing that this time. It's a little different from what I would normally do. But after coming out of Jude and Jude telling us to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints and talking about what all that meant and, and, and how we are challenged, we are encouraged, we are indeed ordered by Jude to contend for that faith, we come to uh, the end of that and several people ask me, well, how do we do that? How do we stand firm? How do we contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And as I thought about that and prayed about that and, and got ready to do to move out of Jude and thinking of going to John, just really felt like we ought to spend a few weeks in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, if we'd have had the first five chapters, we, you would have seen that in the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul lays a very firm foundation theologically. He talks about the sovereignty of God. He talks about the power of God. He talks about the grace of God. He talks about the this God giving us life when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And he builds that whole theological uh, uh, truth that God is a mighty God and a God is a God who saves sinners. And then in the second half, chapters five, six, uh, excuse me, 4, 5, and 6, the apostle then sort of applies everything based on that truth. And he comes to chapter 6 and he deals with this concept of the armor of God. Now we talked about last week how Paul had, is in Rome, in prison. He is chained to a praetorian guard. He is chained to the elite forces of the Roman army 24-7, every day of the year. Sometimes, some historians say, he was chained to two of them. One on each arm, six feet out from him on each side. It is as far as he ever got from a Roman guard, a Roman praetorian guard, throughout his entire imprisonment. So Paul looked at these guards. He looked at these soldiers. And he saw them in full armor every day and every night that he lived there and, and, and was serving his sentence there in a Roman prison. I think what we have here is Paul looking at an external matter and applying it to an internal spiritual truth. The, the, the Roman soldier standing there was a physical reality. The pieces of armor that he had on that we'll talk about one by one over the next several weeks were pieces of armor that he used in his protection of his prisoner in this case, but in being ready to stand off an oncoming army, uh, uh, an onslaught from an oncoming army. As a matter of fact, the, these praetorian guards are, are, were so elite, they were trained for, for their unit to be able to stand off an army that, that outnumbered them by hundreds. But through their training and through their armor and through the protection they had because of armor, they were able to stand their ground against that, that oncoming armor and defend the, the empire, as it were, or their part of the empire where they were serving. These men were well trained. And so Paul looks at each piece of that armor and he, he takes the belt and he applies it to a spiritual reality of truth that we'll talk about this morning. He looks at the breastplate and he analyzes what the breastplate does on the Roman soldier and he takes that external truth and he makes it an internal spiritual reality. Well, if the breastplate protects this on the Roman soldier, then 
in, in comparing that, this is what it compares in our life, and so on and so forth. He moves through the entire armor, and we will talk about that. But hear what Paul says as, he begin, as I read beginning in verse 10, our text from last week. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be, you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. And in the first part of verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Having girded your loins with truth. I want you to notice something here in verses 10 through the first part of 14, in that Paul, over and over again, talks about being strong in the Lord, recognize our battle is not against flesh and blood, and then he uses that little two-letter or two-word phrase, stand firm. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Uh, having done everything and putting on the armor, stand firm. And then in verse 14, as he comes to the armor, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. You get the idea in looking at that that Paul is, is very intent on every believer, everywhere, understanding that we are to stand firm that we are to have a, a, a firm foundation, and that, we are to, that we are to not give, that we are not compromise, that we are not to give up. But rather, and no matter what the, the onslaught is, no matter what the battle is, no matter what the struggle is, that we as believers, if we are armored as we are to be armored by the armor of God, then we will be able to stand firm. Those are the, that, that's the key of this passage. And that's really what the apostle Jude was saying when he said in, in his little book to contend earnestly, stand firm in the truth, stand firm in the faith that was once, off, once for all delivered to the saints. But before we get to the belt, I want us to think about that little idea of standing firm. What, is, what are some of the implications of what the apostle is saying there? Well, I think there are basically five implications there that talk about the importance of the meaning of stand firm. First of all, I think Paul is saying to you and me that we must not feel disappointed or unhappy because there is conflict, because there's battle. It's very easy for us to get disappointed, disillusioned, discouraged if there's any kind of spiritual battle that begins to take place. It's very easy for us to say, oh, why is this happening to me? Why is this taking place? I don't want this kind of struggle. I just want a life that's happy and easy and, and never have to worry about it or struggle in it. And Paul is saying through these words, that is not a reality. That is not a realistic view of what life is, especially life in Christ. He told Timothy, he said, if anyone desires to live godly, they will be persecuted. There will be battle. There will be struggle in their life. If anyone desires to be obedient to Christ, then, then they will find the forces of the enemy coming against them. Jesus even said that in John 15. He said in John 15, as he was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, he said, listen, if they love me, they'll love you. If they heard me, they'll hear you. But if they hated me, they'll hate you. I mean, that's just, a, that's just a spiritual principle of reality. And so by saying, stand firm, I think the first thing Paul is saying here is, don't get discouraged. 
don't be defeated. Don't be unhappy or unjoyful simply because there is a battle. Because if you are in Christ and you are seeking to be a godly soldier of Christ, there will be a battle. There will be conflict. Secondly, I think Paul is saying, uh, not only must we not be surprised or disappointed, but beyond that, we must not be frightened. We're, we're not to fear the enemy. We're to fear God and face the enemy. So often we, we, we fear the enemy because we're not properly fearing God. We're not trusting him. We're not standing in awe of him. When we really come to realize who the God is we serve and the power and the might and the glory of that God, then we can't fear anybody. I mean, why would we fear anybody? Paul said to the Romans, if God is for us, who's against us? Now, the implication there is, if God is for us, yeah, you're going to have people against you, but who are they? What does it matter? If God is for us, we stand firm, not in our own strength, not in our own might, but we stand firm, as he said, in the Lord, in the strength of his might. So don't, not only don't be surprised and disappointed and, and, and disillusioned or discouraged, but don't be frightened in the face of battle. Battle will come. Battle is a spiritual reality. But we're not to be frightened if we're standing firm in him and in his strength. I think thirdly, Paul's implication here in stand firm suggests that we must not be half-hearted or uncertain. Not half-hearted or uncertain. Far too often... We come into the Christian life and we're given the idea that being a Christian really entails only one thing. And that is walking to the front of a church and, and going through baptismal water and then that's it. That's all there is to it. But the Christian life is a life that calls for a life of commitment. It calls for a life that is not half-hearted, that is not uncertain about what our call is, but that stands firm in the reality that God has called us, God has equipped us, and God will care for us, and we must walk with Him every day. It's not a matter of saying, okay, I'll be a Christian on Sunday, and I'll be myself the rest of the week. Christianity is not coming to Christ and, and having something added to our life. You know, we just kind of add Jesus on and... and go about our life with everything else. No, being commitment and not being committed and not being half-hearted or uncertain is saying that Christ is our Lord. Christ is our life. Christ has called us, redeemed us, uh, set us apart, moved us out of the, uh, the whole realm of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious light. Christ is everything, and we cannot face Him half-hearted. If we do, we won't stand firm. If we're half-hearted in our walk with Christ... We won't stand firm. We will compromise. We will fall. We will slip. It calls for a complete commitment. Paul, Paul put it this way in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He said, you know, be a living sacrifice. Present your bodies, which body there is just... Uh, indicative of the whole self. It's not just the physical part and say, well, we're not to commit the spirit. Body there is the picture of the whole self. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto Christ, unto God. That, that is everything you have, everything that you are is given to him and 
belongs to him and you acknowledge that so so standing suggests that we must not be half-hearted or uncertain fourthly it means we must get rid of the things that prevent your standing properly and then never even give a thought to possible retreat you get rid of the things which are preventing you from standing firmly I mean, you know, Paul talks about in Ephesians uh, earlier on in this book, he says, put off the old man. Put off the things of the old man. Behold, you're in Christ. All things have become new. So get rid of the old stuff. Get rid of everything that would cause you to stumble and cause you to fall. And we'll, we'll deal more with that a little bit later in this, in this idea of, of taking up the armor and one of the particular pieces of armor. But the scripture is clear that you are to cast off that which is an encumbrance to you. We saw that in the book of Hebrews, didn't we? Running the race as best you can, cast off every encumbrance that would keep you from running it successfully. Standing firm means that we get rid of the things that pre prevent us from standing firmly and standing properly, and, and we never give the thought to possible retreat. When that Roman soldier, old Theo up there, was chained to the Apostle Paul, he would have died before he would have retreated. The Roman soldier would give his life for the empire and never even consider running or retreating from the battle. Too many times we as Christians, I think we see the battle coming and we say, oh, where can I go hide? Where can I retreat until the battle's over? Where can I go until there's no longer any struggle? I don't want to struggle. I don't want to battle. Again, I want a life of ease, so I retreat and I hide. And, and then I think the fifth thing Paul means by stand or stand firm is that we are to take up our position and always be alert in it. Do you remember those guards that were placed around the, the, uh, the tomb of Christ? They were the Roman guard. They were the elite of the Roman guard. They were placed around the, the, uh, the, the tomb of Christ and they were given a charge there. Don't let anybody get there. And, and when they took up their positions, they took up their positions with an alertness. They were watching constantly for any kind of intrusion that might come in. As a matter of fact, they were, they were fearful of their very lives. If anything happened, they would have been put to death. That was the law. That was the, uh, when they were, guard, they were guarding that Roman seal. If that seal were broken, then they'd be put to death. Now, the Jewish leaders concocted a little story, you know, and said, well, you just go on back and, and, and tell the, tell the uh, folks that you were, uh, tell, the wrong, tell your, your superiors that you were, you'd fallen asleep, and, and while you were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body, and you know where it went. Well, those Roman soldiers would have been walking into a suicidal pack had they done that, because the, the, the penalty for falling asleep or slumbering or not being alert on the job was death. So Paul's looking at these soldiers that he's chained to, and he's thinking about how that relates to our Christian life, and he sees them there guarding him, and they're not, they're not lazy in their guarding. They're guarding him with diligence. They're standing firm to protect that soldier of the empire, and they were always alert. If you and I are going to be victorious in the battle and putting on the, the armor and standing firm, we will always be alert to where Satan is seeking to destroy us. Where Satan is tempt, uh, seeking to tempt us. You need to understand something. 
very important. Some of you won't even know this name, but if you're my age or older, you will. If you're younger, maybe, maybe, but probably not. There was, no, there was a comedian years ago. His name was Flip Wilson. You remember Flip Wilson? Well, good. Flip Wilson had a little saying. What was his saying? The devil made me do it. Whatever it was, it was the devil made me do it. It was always some kind of something he'd done he shouldn't have done, I guess. But, but the truth is, for the believer, the believer can never, ever, ever say the devil made me do it. Because the devil does not have that kind of control on your life. Now, he can tempt you. He can seek to, he can seek to, seek to distract you, but the devil can never make you do it. And when you're wearing the armor as you ought to be wearing the armor the devil will have less effect on even tempting you even steering you in the wrong direction we're to be alert we recognize our enemy desires to lead us astray and destroy us so that's what it means to stand and stand firm now Paul says you stand firm therefore with these pieces of armor. And he starts out by saying, having girded your loins with truth. That doesn't even sound like it was spoken in the 21st century, does it? Having girded your loins with truth. Well, literally it says having put on the girdle of truth. But I know what we think of when we think of a girdle, and that's not what Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about a belt. Paul was talking about a belt that went around the midsection. It was a little larger than the belt that we would typically wear today on men's trousers or something. And it, it fit very securely around this, this, his waist, around that section. But you also notice, and Theo's is kind of more of a mini tunic, not a full tunic type thing there. But they wore flowing robes. Even the soldiers did. And, and they would have this flowing robe underneath their armor. And it would flow down fairly, down to at least mid-calf or mid-shin. Uh, and, and that robe was there. That, that flowing tunic was there. The purpose of the belt with the Roman soldier was that when the, when, when the battle came, when it was time to charge headlong into the battle, when they knew that the enemy was coming and they had to be able to move quickly and move with resolve, they would reach down and they would pull up their tunic and they would stuff it in their belt. It, it served as a, a way of giving them mobility. It served as a way of giving them quickness and, and, and so that they wouldn't go running out in the battle and have their flowing tunic down around their legs tripping them up and, 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 and encumbering their, their run and they would fall on their face in the battle. The belt was a belt that got them ready for the battle. The belt was a belt that made them prepared to at least go into the battle quickly and swiftly. The belt was important. And, and it was around his waist area so that he could be ready to prepare himself. He wouldn't have to say, oh, where's my belt? Where, where's something I can put this crazy tunic in so I don't fall down? It was there. It was ready. He was prepared. So Paul is saying, as he's looking at this Roman soldier, you know, that, that belt or that girdle that, that is girding the loins, that is around the waist of, of this soldier, that belt kind of reminds me of truth kind of reminds me of truth. Gird your loins, gird your midsection, put on, in order to help you get ready for the battle and to go into the battle, put on truth. Uh, it, it, it's the Greek word for 
absolute truth. It's the Greek word that talks about the truth of God. So in one sense, Paul is saying here, I think, now, as you get ready for battle, the first place you've got to go is to the truth. And the content of truth is the Word of God. Now I realize, and if you've read the text, which I hope you have in its entirety, you, you know that the sixth piece of the armor is called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But, but I want to contend to you, and I hope you'll see this in the next five or six weeks, that, that both of these are talking about the Word of God, but talking about the Word of God from two totally different directions or dimensions. This one is talking about the content. This one is talking about the words of God. This is the, this is the belt that prepares you for the battle that, that David talked about in Psalm 119 and verse 9 when he said, how can a young man or a young woman or an old man or old woman for that matter, but how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers that question by saying, by keeping it according to your word. By keeping it according to your word. So this belt of truth is the, the belt of the content, the belt of the teaching, the, the belt of God having spoken, and we know that truth, and we understand that truth, and we believe that truth, and we commit ourselves, stand firm in that truth. You cannot know that. You cannot wear that belt without being in God's Word. You cannot wear that belt without studying God's Word. You cannot wear that belt unless you are in the Word consistently. Studying the Word, preparing yourself for the battle that is yet to come. And I will contend to you that if you don't have on the belt of truth, if you don't understand and know the content of God's Word, and if you're not committed to the absolute truth of God's Word, then when it comes to that sixth piece, you might as well forget it. You won't even have a pocket knife, much less a sword. Because the sword is contingent upon the belt. The sword is, is built upon the truth and the content of God's Word. So we're talking about the spoken Word, the, the written Word, the revealed Word, the, the, the logos, if you will, of God that we have in the Scripture. And you have there what we say is truth. Now I realize we live in a day that says there's really no such thing as this kind of truth. We live in a day that says, you know, all truth is relative. What's true for me may not be true for you, and what's true for you may not be true for me, and everybody's truth is equal, and everybody's truth is just as valid as anybody else's truth. I love it when people say that, because I immediately think, this person is an idiot. They give it away. I mean, I, I, I don't mean that funny. I mean, that's, that's true. When, they, when, when somebody says, listen, all truth is all statements of truth are valid. They're all equal. They're all the same. Even in religions, you know, I, I spoke with someone a few weeks ago. So, well, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam, they're, they're all basically the same. I said, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, they're all basically the same. I said, well, how do you get that? Well, they all believe in, in one God. There's, there is but one God. Oh, they're, they're monotheistic. Yes, they are all three monotheistic. I said, well, that's true. But it breaks down everywhere after that. 
Because I can look at a, a, a Muslim or I can look at a Jewish person and I can say, you know, I believe that there is one God. We have that similarity. We have that much in common. Although I'm not convinced that Allah is the same as Yahweh, but, but I can say we all believe there's one God. But then when I say, okay, now it's my turn, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God and He's the only way to God. Whoops, everything breaks down there. And all of a sudden, you've either got one truth or you've got no truth, but you don't have three truths. You know, there, there's, a, there's just a, a reality there that God's Word says that is not encapsulated in any of the, quote, world's great religions, end quote, that's not found anywhere except in the truth of God's Word. And folks, you've got to come to grips with that. In our 21st postmodern, 21st century postmodern culture, you've got to come to grips. If you want to stand firm for Christ, stand firm for God, you've got to learn to do that based on the fact that you do believe and you are committed to this is absolute truth. And if you don't, you won't have a belt to start you won't have a belt to stand on, but you don't stand on a belt. You won't have a belt to wear. You won't have a belt to wear. You see, the belt is important at the very beginning of the battle. For the Roman soldier and for the Christian, the truth that the belt is, is a symbol of readiness and preparedness to move out into the battle so the soldier never gets tangled up, never gets tangled up in his tunic, and so the good soldier of Christ never gets tangled up in the affairs of this life. Paul said to young Timothy again in 2 Timothy 2.4, he said, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You see, the, the tunic would trip up the Roman soldier. Being less than wholeheartedly committed to the truth of God will trip up the Christian soldier. But no soldier whose inactive service entangles himself. He lays aside every encumbrance. He lays aside everything that would trip him up. So truth. Do you understand that truth and the truth of God's word and our commitment to that truth is important if we're going to wear the belt? I think there's another dimension of that also, though. It's based on the truth of God's word. It's based on the absolute truth. But, but the word that's used there, uh, aletheia, is a word that could also talk about truthfulness, non-hypocrisy, sincerity, honesty, even commitment. It is a word that, that comes from that and can be used that in a, just a very minor change of lettering there. And the idea that Paul is saying here, I think, is not only that we are to stand girded around our loins with the truth of God's Word, but he's also saying we must do it with a non-hypocritical attitude. We must do it with a commitment that comes from the heart. Sincerity, honesty, depth of our being type of commitment. What is commitment? Well, commitment is having a heart for the battle, whatever the cost. Having a heart for the battle, whatever the cost. Again, in 2 Timothy 2.3, just before that other verse, he said, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy, listen, there, there's going to be hardship. Get your heart set for the battle, no matter what the cost is to you personally. 
You're in the battle not for you. You're in the battle for Christ. You're in the battle for truth. You're in the battle for reality. Have a heart for the battle, whatever the cost. And it goes with that just secondly, having a desire to win, have a desire for victory. Not wanting to let the enemy destroy our testimony. Not wanting to let the enemy destroy our life. We want to we, we, we got to have a desire to win. Uh, we got to have a desire for victory. Paul said to the Corinthians, said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. I've always liked that statement that Paul made there. You know, every every few weeks you'll see on television somewhere you hear somewhere about a big marathon and they'll have 10,000 people out running in it and they'll all start at the same place and they'll all run the same route and and everything but there's always somebody like me who if I were in it which I won't be would come up at the end they don't win it you know, in reality, most of those, if you talk to them, and I've talked to some, I've got friends who do that, I say, well, man, you think you can win this thing? Oh, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't expect to win it. Some Kenyan's going to win it. You know, I, we know that from the outset. I don't expect to win it. But I just want to run in it. Well, that's not very committed, is it? That, that's not really having a desire for what the end result is. Everybody who runs in the race runs, but it's only those who received the prize, only one of them receives the prize, and that's the one who really, 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 really wants it. And Paul says in the Christian life, you really need to want it. You really need to desire it. Not just to run, not just so you're running, but really desiring to win it. And I think the way you do that, I mentioned it earlier, I'll, I'll mention it again, is, is thirdly, you, you become a living sacrifice to God. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, you, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I remember about 20 years ago, you can use this, by the way, I'm sure, especially young people, you'll like this. It's gross. Um, I remember, I remember about 20 years ago reading, I was reading some history and, and it, it went back to Ireland and some things in Ireland. And I remember reading a story that took place in the 10 hundreds. Is that how you'd say that? In the 1,000s. Almost about 1,000 years ago. And, and the story was told that if there was this, and if, if you look today at the, do we, have any, we don't have any O'Neills in, in our church family, do we? No O'Neills? No? Okay. If you look at the O'Neill crest in Ireland today, it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing. In the, in the upper left-hand corner, you know the crest is broken into four things. In the upper left-hand corner, there's a red hand. It's just red. B but it's called the bloody hand of O'Neill. The bloody hand of O'Neill. And, and the story goes that in, in the year, in the century of 1000, there were some noblemen that were, were, were ch uh, Celtic chieftains and, and they were rowing across the northern Atlantic and, and they saw this beautiful green coastline of land. It's what we call today Iceland. And as they were rowing toward it, 
uh, the chieftains were very proud rivals. They, they had their boat, they had their uh, people in the boat, and they, were, they always wanted to beat the other one. But just to make it a little more interesting, uh, after a conference was held at sea, it was decided that the one who would become the lord of that land, who would become the, the one who would rule it and reign it, who would, it would be theirs and their families forevermore, the one who would become the lord of the land would be the one whose hand first touched the land. And the story is that three boats were rowing, after some other activities that eliminated some, three boats were rowing for Iceland with all that they could. And, and the, the leader, the, Mr. O'Neill, was up there saying, row, row, and his people were rowing. He was calling out. And as he got closer, he realized that the other boat, at least one of the other boats, was going to beat him to the land, and he was not going to be able to claim that land for his clan. And so as they're rowing and he's yelling and he realizes he's about to lose, he reaches down in the boat, picks up a battle axe, lays his hand down, and chops off his left hand, with which he grabs with his right hand and he flings it, and it lands on the land first. That's commitment. That's, that's commitment. You know, had a little problem. Fortunately, he was right-handed, I think, because he took it and threw it with his right hand. But, but that's what real commitment is. It's giving up anything and everything to win the prize. Now, our commitment doesn't have to be chopping off a hand. You know, it doesn't even have to be like the old, I remember the story one time about the, what was it, the pig and the chicken who decided they were going to give their owner some bacon and eggs for, for breakfast. And the pig looked at the chicken and said, well, with you, that's just, a, that's just a contribution. For me, it's a total sacrifice to do that. And I guess we have to ask ourselves, as we put on this belt of truth, are we just willing to make a contribution based on the truth? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves to Christ for his truth? Is it just half-hearted? Or is it complete? You won't be able to stand firm against Satan unless you're ready to fight the battle. And to be ready to fight the battle, you must be, you must be committed to God's truth, to God's word. So the first piece of armor that we've got to put on, as Theo shows us there, is the belt of truth. What do you believe about God's word? How committed are you to God's word as truth? Not just in general, but in specific for your life. How committed are you to saying, I want to know this word, I want to devour this word, I want to wear this word as a belt so that I'll be ready for the battle when the battle comes. Or is it just a book to you? Just something you pick up and bring to church on Sunday morning so everybody can see it. Or is your life based on everything this book says? It's the belt. And everything else in that armor, 
every other piece of that armor is only made effective when the belt is in place. And we'll see that in weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, you tell us to stand firm. You tell us to put on the belt of your truth, the belt of your word, the content, the teaching, the conviction, the reality of your truth. Father, I pray that you will begin preparing us by helping us, O oh Lord, put on the belt of your truth. That we may be able to stand firm when the battle comes. Father, I pray for men and women who are here that don't know you. Pray your Holy Spirit would move in their life and call them to yourself. Pray, Father, for others that you're moving to even be a part of our church family. Lord, you'd make that clear to them this morning and Father for others who have all sorts of things they, they need to deal with you about and they can do it right where they sit right where they stand in a moment Father I ask you to bring them to confession and repentance Father I think of some dear friends this morning who are heavy on my heart and I pray Lord you would bring them to a point of dealing honestly with you on your basis of your truth. Father, I pray you'd break their hearts and restore their lives. Father, thank you now for this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.